hymn was a very appropriate opening hymn, not only because it goes so high, note-wise, but because it exalts the name of the Lord and it connects uh, our minds and hearts to the subject matter that God has uh, placed on our hearts this morning. I'd like to speak to you about the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to understand that term a lot better, hopefully, by the end of this message and see how marvelous and wonderful our Savior really is. I'd like you to open your Bibles with us to the book of Second Peter in the New Testament, close to the book of Revelation, Second Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Here the Apostle Peter is writing his final message to the church. We know historically that he's in the city of Rome as a prisoner. We know from history that he would write this letter shortly before he would be taken and crucified upside down. The reason he was crucified in that manner is because he told the magistrate that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. But on the heart of the Apostle Peter was the burden of increased false teaching that was being spread among the Gentile churches. Now remember, the Apostle Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. He was mainly ministering to Jewish people, but he had on his heart the churches that had been organized subsequent to the persecution of the church in Jerusalem and were scattered throughout the region that we know today as Turkey. So in that part of the world, most of those churches were Gentile believers, but there were some Jewish people uh, among those churches. But it's interesting to me that the Apostle Peter is going to write this last will and testament to churches that he perhaps had never visited. He had perhaps never been eye to eye with, but his burden was on their behalf, and he was afraid that the apostate ministers, the false prophets, the false teachers that were in the churches or among the churches of that day would have inroads into their understanding about who Christ is, what he has, uh, what he has accomplished, and what he has yet to do. So, Peter is going to write this as an encouragement to the persecuted churches of that region. And hopefully, I believe he's writing uh, with us in mind as well. For time's sake, we're going to drop down to verse 14, and we're going to notice what Peter writes. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tabernacle. Now that he's saying shortly, the sentence is going to be executed against me. And, and it's interesting to me that he would use the word tabernacle uh, to describe his body. Uh, many of us don't realize this, but these bodies that we're wearing today are just temporary. They're, they're temporary fixtures. And um, it's, it's like a, a tabernacle, a temporary abode. Death is described as uh, the folding of a tent. But he says, uh, I know that shortly I must put off my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Remember John chapter 21, verse 18, when Jesus uh, had appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, he told Peter this. He said that, that you're going to follow me. You're going to drink of this cup. You're, you're going to follow me in a martyr's death. Um, and, uh, but you're going to live to be an old man. And uh, another is going to gird thee and take you where thou wouldest not. He, in other words, he was, he was describing crucifixion. He was cri describing the kind of death that Peter was actually going to experience. Now, about 40 years has passed between John 21, 18 and 2 Peter 1. So now the apostle Peter is approaching or around the age of 70. And he's near the end of his journey. And he's seeing the fulfillment of what Christ had told him in John 21, 18. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my 
decease. The interesting word, decease, it's exodus. Exodus. It's only here and in Luke 9.31, and it literally means departure. Departure. Now, now capture this. This is the mind of the agent of Peter, and he's writing about his own death, and he's calling it an exodus. He's calling it a departure. Now, many of us that have traveled much have gone to an airport, and you have two gates. You have the departure gate, and you have the arrival gate. You know, when you get to the arrival gate, you see everybody's happy, hugging. It's good to see those that have been away, and, oh, it's just a time of, of, of great happiness. But when you go to the departure gate, it's another story. A lot of solemn looks, a lot of sad faces, because the departure gate, uh, we're leaving the ones we love behind. But at the arrival gate, we're meeting those that have gone before us. So it's interesting that he would use this terminology. It's, it's as though he's anticipating the joy that is awaiting him at the arrival gate. These things I, I'm, um, that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. I don't want you to forget what you've been taught theologically, doc doctrinally, practically. I don't want you to forget what I wrote in the first letter that I circulated among you. These things always keep in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now what is a fable? Muthos in the Greek language. Muthos, myths. Uh, invented stories, tales, or, or fiction. And I think he could be referring to uh, either uh, Roman or Greek pagan legends, or perhaps the Jewish uh, Mishnaic uh, legends um, that were circulated among the Jews of his day. Whatever it is, he says, we haven't followed cunningly devised manipulative fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his what? Majesty. The only time he ever used that word. In all of his writings, he, in, in, in all of the sermons that we have recorded of Peter in the book of Acts, you don't find him using this word. This is the only time he used the word majesty, majesty. Megalosuni, Megalosuni is the Greek name, and it literally means greatness of dignity, glory, and power. He's going to reserve that word, majesty, for the person of Jesus Christ alone. And this, this is going to speak to what he's encouraging our hearts with this morning, realizing that there's a better place than the place we're living now. There's a better world than the world we're living in now. And the only reason we have a hope and a confidence in that world coming is because of what we learn about Jesus Christ himself. So the Apostle Peter says, I, I'm not trying to share with you things that I've heard. Things that have been passed from one generation to the other. I'm actually sharing with you something that I saw with my own eyes. This is not hearsay. This is something that Peter has treasured all those 40 years, all those years that he's suffered in ministry and trials and temptations in the world. He's always leaning upon something that he learned in a certain mountain, we're going to read about it in a minute, um, about Jesus Christ and who he really is and uh, what he has promised will surely come to pass. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. <clears throat> For he, Christ, received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard. We, we heard the voice of God the Father speak out of the cloud 
We heard it and we saw Jesus Christ transfigured before us. His, his, his whole form was changed right in front of us when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Now, we're going to be dwelling a lot on this, but I want you to notice what he includes. After he has shared his personal experience with Jesus Christ, the things that he has seen with his own eyes and heard with his own ears, he's going to lift up something more credible than what he has himself seen and heard. Now, what would that be? We have also a more sure word of prophecy than the things that we've heard and seen. Whereunto ye do well (coughs) that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, chiefly, most importantly, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy, or the scriptures, came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God, as they spake, uh, uh, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now this is interesting to me. The Apostle Peter would exalt the testimony of scripture above his own human experience. How different that is in our generation when we see so many people relying on experience rather than the testimony of the Word of God. We have in our hands, we have before us this morning, even a more sure word of prophecy than those that lived in the first century and physically saw and heard the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to me, that's simply amazing. Many times we we feel like, well, boy, I wish I could have lived back then. I wish I could have seen those miracles. I I wish I could have been around to hear Christ actually preach or Peter or Paul uh, actually preach. And and many of us have felt that way. But I want you to understand what you're holding in your hand is the divinely inspired and preserved word of God that is a more sure word of prophecy than anything we could humanly experience in the first century. So he says, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, let's go back and find out what he's talking about. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 17. Now, we could, if we wanted to and had the time, we could go and compare Matthew chapter 17 with Luke chapter 9 and Mark chapter 9, where this event that he's referring to being a witness of actually occurred. And we can compare them. But that's not really the direction I want to go this morning. I want to go back to Matthew, though. This is the first and primary account of this event that he was an eyewitness of and understand it a little bit better. The last verse of chapter 16 gives us a contextual uh, uh, platform. Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing. And he says in verse 28, Verily I say unto you, There are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He said, Some of the people that I'm speaking to are going to be eyewitnesses of my glory and my kingdom. In chapter 17, verse 1 begins with a conjunction, and, and after six days. A short time later, after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart. Now, Before we develop this text, I want you to understand who this is. This is Peter, Simon Peter, the writer of our text this morning in 2 Peter 1.16. He's the one that wrote about this 40-something years later. The apostle to the circumcision, the Jewish people. And he mentions James. Now, this James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. This is James the Just. 
And James the Just is the one that was chosen to be the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And he was the first apostle to be martyred in Acts chapter 12. So here's Peter and, and here's James. And then there's John. John, his brother, the writer of the Gospel of John, the writer of the book of Revelation, right? These are all these apostles. Now somebody says, well, see, Jesus must have favorites. Because here's Peter, James, and John, and they're not only going to go with him into this mount, but we're going to read also where they went with him uh, to heal Jairus' daughter, to raise her from the dead. He took Peter, James, and John. We're also going to read in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus went to the cross where he told the other disciples to rest and sleep a while, but he said to Peter, James, and John, come with me a little closer. Jesus does not have favorites among his people, but he does have intimates. Peter, James, and John were intimate with Jesus. They were the closest circle to Jesus, the people that Jesus looked to for encouragement and looked to to be leaders in his church. So Peter, James, and John are going to go into this high mountain. There's some conjecture as to which mountain this was. There are many mountains in Judea. But noticing the uh, geographical location of this time frame and, 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 and uh, events in the ministry of Jesus Christ, most commentators believe that this is Mount Hermon. Because Mount Hermon rises high above all the other mountains. It's the highest mountain in that region. So we can assume or we can, we can ponder how they would go up into this high mountain. And Jesus is going to show them his majesty. And Jesus, verse 2, was transfigured before them, before Peter, James, and John. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. In other words, this is something that is not earthly. It's not an earthly produced uh, brilliance. It's not produced by light bulbs or flaming fires. It's, it's a heavenly light. It's the Shekinah glory light of God. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, you Bible students recognize that <clears throat> Moses and Elijah have been gone a long time. Moses, 1,500 years before the coming of Christ. He, he was uh, taken into a mountain. And he died and was buried by God himself. The Bible tells us that. No man even to this day knows where Moses was buried. But Elijah is someone in the Bible that didn't experience death. He was uh, one of two. Enoch was the other one. Uh, Elijah was caught up by God in a chariot and taken into heaven without having to experience death. Now that's interesting. These are the two main characters of the Old Testament scriptures. And now they're meeting with Jesus. And they're meeting with him in this exceeding high mountain. That is going to ultimately reveal a portion of his majesty. Moses is a great representative of the law. Because it was through Moses that the law of God was given to Israel. And we understand that. Elijah, however, is a figure or a representative of the prophets. He's the main prophetic uh, figure in God's economy in the Old Testament, Elijah. So here you have the main two characters that represent the law and the prophets, and they're meeting together with the one that would fulfill them both. Because Jesus came, according to Matthew 5, 17, I came not to destroy the law or the prophets but to fulfill them. So here's the, 
Here's the background. And they're meeting with Jesus here, and they're talking with him. Now, somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I, I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to have amnesia. We're not going to remember anything about this old world. We're not going to rem remember any family. We're not going to even know our own names when we get to heaven. Then I'm going to ask you, what is the point? I experience that nearly every day. But what is the, what is the point if heaven is a place where we forget everything that God has taught us while we're in the earth? If we fail to recognize any of the ones that we worship the Lord or walked with in our little journey here, what is the point of resurrecting a people that don't know anything about how God has blessed them in their earthly existence? Here's one of the many verses that I use to prove that our identity doesn't change. When we arise in the resurrection, our body is going to be changed and glorified, but we're going to remain who we are. <clears throat> Moses and Elijah were Moses and Elijah. The glorified Moses and Elijah were actually the physical Moses and Elijah of the Old Testament record. And behold... He says, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter, here's the writer. Here's the one that we're talking about mainly uh, this morning, Peter. And he said unto the, Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It's a good thing. I know we kind of cut Peter short a lot of times, but I'll tell you what, I appreciate his zeal. I appreciate his devotion to the Lord. In the previous chapter, Matthew 16, it was Peter that spoke up and said that thou art the Christ, the Son of the true and living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock of testimony I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the same Peter. And he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three altars, uh, excuse me, three tabernacles. One for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You know, that seems like a reasonable thing, especially considering that it was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles when all of, the, all of Israel were commanded by the Lord to build tabernacles on this particular feast. Uh, when I say tabernacle, I'm talking about a tent-like structure to remind Israel of their wilderness journeys for 40 years when they lived in tabernacles all the way to the land of Canaan. God didn't want them to forget that. So he said, every year in the Feast of Tabernacles, I want you to build this tent... And I want you to, it could be right out the front door of your house, but I don't want you to live in the house. I want you to sleep in the tent. And this is going to remind you of how good I've been to you all your life. Taking you through all that wilderness. So it's that season in which Jesus is appearing unto Peter, James, and John. And in that season, it would be perfectly appropriate for Peter to say, well, we'll, we'll build a, a tabernacle for them, just like we're going to build one for you and for us. See, the mistake that Peter made was not in his effort to bring them into closer fellowship, Moses and Elijah, into fellowship with them. I can imagine the questions they would have for Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine? That wasn't the, that wasn't the thing that was he was rebuked for. What he was rebuked for is simple. He was equating Moses and Elijah with Jesus. That's why the voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Remember this. If you forget everything I say in this part of our message, don't forget this. There is no competition 
with Jesus Christ. Even men like Moses and men like Elijah that were greatly used of God in their generation cannot compare to the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. Consider this. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only or himself alone. Christ remains when all other ministers depart. Ministers in the kingdom work of Christ, they come and they go. They live and they die. But isn't it interesting? Jesus always remains. He's always there. I think about that in the context of the three Hebrew children that went into the fiery furnace. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar looked in the furnace and said, Lo, I see four, and the fourth is likened to the Son of God. At the end of that story, the three Hebrew children come out of the furnace, not even having the smell of smoke on them. I tell you, I declare, I could be standing 50 feet away from somebody smoking a cigarette, and my wife will look at me and say, You've been smoking. I can't, I, can't, I, I, I can't understand how they didn't have even the smell of smoke on their persons. But what I want you to remember about that story is that three came out. The fourth stayed in the furnace. And he's there when you and I are cast into that furnace as well. Now to me, God is speaking to our hearts as well. When we think about Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he came into the world to accomplish, that's what I want to share with you. That's what Peter wants the church never to forget. Never forget the cost of your redemption. Never forget the suffering that Jesus Christ had to endure in order to have you and me broken, undone sinners with him in eternity. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. I want to share with you a short poem that was written by an old English um, pastor in the 1800s. He wrote this. He who wept above the grave, he who stilled the raging wave, meek to suffer, strong to save, he shall come in glory. He whose sorrows pathway trod, he that every good bestowed, Son of man and son of God, he shall come in glory. He who bled with scourging sore, thorns scarlet meekly wore, he who every sorrow bore, he shall come in glory. Monarch of the smitten cheek, scorn of Jew and scorn of Greek, priest and king divinely meek, he shall come in glory. He who died to set us free, he who lives and loves even me, he who comes whom I shall see, Jesus only, only he, he shall reign in glory. What Jesus is revealing in this miraculous display of his eminence, his dignity, his honor, his authority, his uh, megalosuni, his, his, his uh, uh, amazing uh, power was a foretaste of his kingdom. A foretaste of what God's redeemed family are to anticipate. A foretaste of what we, by sovereign grace and tender mercy, will one day experience it is, it is a prelude of his kingdom authority, of his kingdom power. But my mind is stayed on this word, majesty. 
he revealed a portion of that majesty to Peter, James, and John so that you and I could read about it later. And I want to understand it uh, just a little bit deeper with you this morning if God will uh, be with us. The first thing that I want to think about in reference to majesty is Trinity. I want you to think about Jesus in his deity. I want you to think about the term majesty used in connection with God in his triune form. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 5 verse 7 says there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are what? Are one. When we think about Jesus as the Word, when we think about him as the very Son of God, we think about him as an equal um, uh, equal in position with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We see that all the way through the scripture. I, I think about this uh, in terms of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, when he said, May the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Remember that benediction? What he's doing, he's saying, Okay, may the love of God the Father be with you. May the grace... Of God the Son be with you. May the the uh, the uh, mercy uh, uh, that we receive through the Holy Spirit be with you always. There's a triune blessing in the benedictions of the Apostle Paul all the way through his letters. You see it over and over again. He doesn't want us to forget that Jesus is not a, just a buddy. He's not just a friend that we can call on him when we're in trouble. He's not a genie uh, that we rub his bottle. And tell him to get out and give us everything we want. And then when we get what we want, tell him to get back in. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is one in with the Father. And in the Trinity, he is bearing that glory. Now, this is going to be great. I, I hope you can hang on for this. This is going to be really interesting when you think about uh, the majesty of Jesus Christ reflecting the majesty of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to just, for time's sake, we're just going to look at some of the language of the psalmist David. I want to go back to the book of First Chronicles, chapter 29, when David is about to die. Most of us recognize this story. David is about to die. He bequeathed to his son Solomon the, the throne and the kingdom and all the wealth that he had accumulated and he wants to devote the majority, the vast majority of his wealth and position to the building of the temple. He, he donates what we would consider billions of dollars today of gold, silver, brass, and iron for the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem. Now that's what's on his heart. Even, even at the moment of death, that's the closest thing to David's heart. But this is something I want you to pick up on in First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11, uh, 10 and 11. Are you there? Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Now watch this. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the what? The majesty, the majesty used in reference to the triune God of heaven. For all that is in heaven and in earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. This is what David is saying on his deathbed, as it were. And he's reminding God's people that the majestic rule and reign of Jehovah God is going to continue on. Yes, I've been king for 40 years, and now I'm going to rest with, sleep with my fathers. But the king of kings is still on his throne, and he's ruling forever and ever. And he uses the word majesty. Notice quickly, go to Psalms 104. I want you to see this and rejoice in it with me and connect it to what Peter is sharing with us this morning. David said this in Psalm chapter 104. And verse, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, for thou art very great. Thou art clothed with 
honor, and what? Majesty. There it is again. Who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain. And the whole chapter is, is, is revolving around the greatness, the magnitude, the magnificence, the majesty of the triune God. Many other psalms could be, uh, he used this uh, expression in many other psalms. But before we leave psalms, I want to go to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, notice this. He says this, beginning with verse 1, I will extol thee, my God, O King. Notice he's talking about not only the power of God, but the rule of God. He's ruling as king. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, aren't you waiting for the millennium to come about? Then the Lord is going to rule as king? No, I'm not waiting for that. Because I believe Christ is reigning today. I believe he's on his throne today. The majesty of Jesus Christ is something that is being enjoyed today by all of those that have already gone before us. They're there. They're with him today. And I want you to realize this in the context of what we're talking about. When God's people uh, die in this world, they uh, immediately are in the presence of God himself. They're in the presence of the king of kings. Many of the Psalms anticipate that reality. And he says, I'm extolling, I'm worshiping, I'm I'm adoring, I'm praising you for who you are. Not what you've given me, not what you've done for me, but because of who you are. You deserve praise. He says, every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever. Psalm 145. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty. Do you see the word? Thy greatness, thy dignity, thy power, and of thy wondrous works. Works of what? What kind of works, David? One, works of uh, creation. I'm going to praise you for your creative power. You, You... You spoke the world and the universe into existence. I'm going to praise you for that creation. Number two, providence. I'm going to praise you for the way you've led me. We sang two songs this morning. uh, Speaking about the Lord leading us. Do you understand that's providence? That's God's providence. Your protection in the car wreck is God's providence. Your protection, uh, your health, your, um, your life is uh, an aspect of God's providence. It's the majesty of the king that has providentially blessed us to be together this morning to hear this message. It's God's providence. So we're going to praise him for his work in creation, for his work in providence, but also his work in salvation. The saving work of God is related to the majesty of Jesus Christ. Can I say this without fear of successful contradiction this morning? There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. None. There's no salvation in Islam. There's no salvation in Hinduism. There's no salvation in any religion or any religious aspect The salvation that is eternal, the salvation that is of Jehovah God, relates to God himself alone. And David says, I'm going to praise you for that. Your works of creation, your works of providence, and your work of salvation. Before we leave this psalm, oh, this is great. The whole psalm is great. But, well, watch this, verse 10. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom, not our kingdom. So many of us are preoccupied with the kingdom of man. We're we're preoccupied with building our own kingdom. We're forgetting about the kingdom that really matters, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty 
of His kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all that fall and raiseth up all those that are bowed down. Isn't that good news to you this morning? Isn't that a part of the message of the Apostle Peter to the persecuted church of his day? Remember, the Apostle Peter was about to be uh, crucified by Nero. Nero died Uh, Nero committed suicide, by the way. As an emperor of Rome, he committed suicide at a very young age um, in the year 68 A.D. So we know that Peter had to write these words before the, the death of Nero because when Nero died, they released all the political prisoners. So we know that uh, we're, we're pretty sure that it was 67 or 68 A.D. when Peter was writing that he was an eyewitness to the majesty of God. But isn't it encouraging to know that when he's using this word majesty, he's referring to the triune God of the Old Testament. He's referring to God himself and how that this God is characterized as one who picks up those that are fallen. One who picks up those that are broken. One who picks up those that are bowed down because of various burdens and trials and struggles in their life. This is the God of the Bible. But brothers and sisters, we see it through the lens of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this glory and we see this kingdom through the majesty of Jesus Christ. The power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In that context, I want us to go to the book of Hebrews very quickly. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, where I believe the Apostle Paul is writing... Uh, the same encouragement to the persecuted church of his day. In Hebrews chapter 1, he's going to remind us of this truth of the Trinity and the majesty that pertains to the triune glory of Christ. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake unto the, uh, in the past unto uh, the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days of the Jewish economy uh, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of what? The majesty. The majesty on high. This is a declaration. I believe this is an essential element of the gospel. Without the majesty of Jesus Christ, you don't have much of a gospel. Because without the majesty of Jesus Christ, you have a Savior that's begging people to let Him save them. You have a a Savior that's making His best attempt to save as many people as He can before time runs out. But He can't quite get the job done. That's the kind of salvation you have When you ignore the majesty of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters let me tell you. A part of the gospel message. Is that Jesus Christ when he came into the world to save his people from their sins. He got the job done and he received everything that he paid for. He's never going to lose it. He's never going to shrink away from it. Every heir of promise is going to be with him in eternity. And the Apostle Paul and Peter agreed in this and they're saying, hey, we need you persecuted Christians to remember these truths. Remember the majesty of Jesus Christ when you're under the lash. Remember the majesty of Jesus Christ when you're suffering, when you're, when you're being isolated, when you're being uh, marginalized by unbelievers. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ and His majesty when you're being persecuted for his namesake. Let me share with you another a British minister wrote this in the, in the early 1800s. He said this, Man judgeth man in ignorance. He seeth but in part. Our trust is in our maker, God, who searcheth every heart. And every wrong and every woe, when put beneath our feet, as stepping stones may help us on, to his high mercy seat. Then teach us still to smile, O Lord, though sharp the stones may be. 
remembering that they bring us near to thee, dear Lord, and near only to thee. That's the heart of a martyr. Those are the words of a persecuted Christian. You see, the reason I want to share that with you is because that relates to our study this morning. How that in the majesty of Jesus Christ, we have a lens through which we are able to see God moving behind the curtain of time, ruling over all events, all things are under his feet. Secondly, I want to think about not only the majesty of Jesus Christ in the Trinity, but I want to think about the majesty of Jesus Christ in his humility. Realizing what the Apostle Paul meant in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when he relates to us the condescending love of Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus Christ do? He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Though he was equal with God, he thought it not robbery uh, uh, to take the name of God upon him. Why? Because he was God. But look at his humility. Look at the humility of our Savior this morning. Consider how that um, he didn't even have a bed to lay on. Isn't that hard for us to even conceive? This wonderful Savior that came all the way from heaven to earth, he comes into the earth and he says, The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. That's humility. He that uh, had everything in the universe at his disposal, yet when he comes to earth, he empties himself of his previous glory and becomes the poorest of the poor in the world. Think about this. Think about the majesty of one that would do that. Think about him being called Emmanuel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Right? Right? We love that verse, but the next verse says, and you'll call him Emmanuel. God! With us. Deity. In human form. God coming down to man. Because man cannot go to him. God coming down to man. To do something for man. That man cannot do for himself. Coming to fulfill the law. On our behalf. That's huge. Coming to fulfill. Why is that huge? Preacher, I've heard that all my life, and I can't figure out why that's such a big deal. Well, let me, let me explain. How many sins does it take to make a person worthy of hell? Just how many sins? How many sins did Adam uh, commit and Eve commit to be cast out of the garden forever? How many? Just one. Just one. Do you realize that if we break one of God's commandments, one law, it's enough to prevent us from being with him in eternity forever? Just one. But how many do we break? And how often do we break them? You see, brothers and sisters, the law was not given to save us. The law was given to show us God's standard of righteousness so that we would understand that we cannot keep the law to perfection. Therefore, we need someone to stand in our behalf that can. And Jesus Christ is the only one that could do that. I want you to see it. I want you to understand it this morning. He is Emmanuel. I think about this in the context of uh, when the Magi, came, the Magi, came from the Far East to, to Jerusalem after the birth of Jesus Christ. Don't you love this? In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, he says, uh, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he that is born what? King of the Jews. That's why Herod was so troubled. Because Herod wanted to stay king, right? So he's not going to put up with any uh, other king coming into his realm. 
What was the charge against Jesus Christ when he was nailed to the tree? Remember they nailed the charge over the criminal? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This day, or this night in the city of David, a king is born, a savior, Christ the Lord. All of these verses that we love and we treasure up in our hearts are reflecting the majesty of Jesus Christ, but we can't see that majesty without understanding his humility. Jesus Christ humbled himself and became as a poor man to redeem poor men. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He said, Ye have known the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that he was rich, but became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Oh, what a Savior. Do you see him this morning? Can you rejoice in the magnificence of Jesus Christ? Can you rejoice in his majesty? Can you rejoice that he is a part of the Trinity? Can you rejoice that he came in perfect humility to demonstrate his favor and grace toward us? Thirdly, I want you to consider him in his humanity. I love what Matthew said in Matthew chapter 9 verse 35. He said, and Jesus went about the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. You know, God has blessed me with a son that uh, is a, a physician. He went through all of the hard knocks. Uh, you know, um, we always uh, complain about how expensive a, a doctor is, but what are you going to pay somebody that goes to school 20 years? I mean, what's that worth? Hmm? And I believe he's a good doctor. In fact, I have even told people that he is the best doctor Memphis, Tennessee ever had. No bias at all. But I'm going to tell you, he's nothing compared to our great physician and our great king. He healed every disease. It says it plain. You can't misunderstand it. He healed every disease of every person that ever came to him. He never lost a case. He, he never had a customer uh, uh, leave disappointed. He never failed to accomplish that mission. Why? Because of his magnificence. Because of his tremendous uh, majesty. He had power over all the diseases. He had power over every need. And brothers and sisters, he still does. You got something bothering you this morning? You got something hurting you? Have you been hurt? You got a struggle that you're going through? Jesus Christ is more than enough to take care of it. He is majesty. I love that. And then we come to his transfiguration. Fourth point. He comes to, a, uh, a, to demonstrate his majesty in the uh, transfiguration itself. As we've already discovered. And, 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 and brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand. I know that's kind of a hard word. Transfigure. What does that mean? Transform. What does that mean? Um, it comes from the Greek word from which we get metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. It is to change form. What happened on the transfiguration for a brief moment of time, Jesus revealed the inner glory of who he was. The inner glory of his kingdom. The inner glory of his person was on the outside for just a moment. A moment in time. But what that is is a prelude to the time when that inner glory that was his all along, is going to be on the outside forever and ever. It is today. It is actually today, as we're going to discover in just a minute, it is actually today on the outside so that uh, uh, the words of Peter have special relevance. 
And the words of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation have special relevance. relevance. Revolu- the book of Revelation, let's go there. And I've, I know I'm, I'm running out of time, but uh, let's go very quickly over to the book of Revelation and see the glorified Savior as he appears to John on the Isle of Patmos. Notice this. Notice this. Rejoice in this. Rest in this. Listen to what we read in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 1. Listen carefully. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, and the prince, did you you underline that? The prince, the chief, the dominant, the first, of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see, this is a, 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 a very important element of our study this morning. Jesus is such a different kind of king. Jesus is such a different kind of a ruler. When you study all of the kingdoms of the earth that we have available to study, and, the, you know, and each one had its own king and its own rulers, well, the king and the rulers of, of the nations of men asked the subjects that they, that, 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 they, that, uh, they ruled over to shed their blood for the king. To shed their blood for the kingdom. But here's a king that comes into the world and he's, uh, he's not asking the subjects to shed their blood for him. He came into the world to shed his blood for his subjects. I've been enjoying uh, watching that series, Chosen. And one of the great things, remember in that uh, first season where Peter was getting on to Jesus and he told him, you can't call Peter. Matthew, are you kidding me? A publican? He's a tax collector for Rome. Jesus, you're making a huge mistake. You don't want this kind of publicity. You don't want a person like Matthew being an apostle. And Jesus says, why, Peter? He says, he's just different than us. And Jesus said to him that famous line. I even got a t-shirt with it on now. Peter, get used to different. You see, this is a different king. A different kingdom. This is not a kingdom that destroys lives of others. This is a kingdom that helps others. This, this is a kingdom that loves their enemy. This is a kingdom that doesn't have the barriers of, of race and color and nationality. This is a kingdom that says, I have children in every nation. And you know what they are in my eyes? They're brothers. They're sisters. Treat each other that way. Brothers. Act like brothers and sisters. Sometimes we don't. And that discredits our king, you see. But I want you to see what encouraged John in his uh, uh, 90s when he's on the Isle of Patmos working in those old mines and he, he might have been discouraged. He might have been, he might have been feeling like, uh, I wonder if this is what I signed up for. I, I wonder if this is really... What it's all about. I wonder if Jesus has just altogether forgotten me. Here I am on the Isle of Patmos. Boom. Here comes Jesus and he gives him the greatest revelation of his kingdom that we'll ever have. John, you remember me? The faithful? You remember me, John? The first begotten from the dead? Well, Brother Jeff, I thought uh, there were several resurrections in the Bible. I, th- I thought there were resurrections of the dead in the Old Testament. I thought there were resurrections of the dead in the New Testament. And yet Jesus says he's the first begotten of the dead. Why is that? Because every one of those resurrections that you read about in the Old Testament and the New Testament Gospels, every one of them apart from Christ, every one of them were raised by a power that was not their own. They were raised by the power of God through someone else. Jesus Christ rose from the dead by his own power. You understand that? Do you understand that when they were making fun of Jesus on that cross and they wagged their heads and they said, oh, if you, 
if you were the, really the Messiah, you'd come down from that cross, and then we would believe on you. I want you to know, Brother Don, he could have come down from that cross. He could have. But he chose not to. And the reason is, is because he knew that's what the Father said it would take to wash away all of our sins. He wouldn't even take wine. Have you ever thought about that? They tried to give him that vinegar, it's wine vinegar, to kind of deaden the pain so he'd live a little longer. It wasn't an act of mercy. They just wanted him to suffer a little longer. But you know what? He refused it. He refused it. He refused that pain pill. He refused it. Because he knew that the Father required complete payment for the sins of all the family of God. That's the kind of king we have. He is majesty. I want you to I'm gonna I want you to think about this a minute. There's a lot of confusion about the book of Revelation today. That's why our church is teaching on it on Wednesday nights. That's because there's so much confusion. There's so many uh, false teachings that they claim the book of Revelation teaches. But I want you to see the book of Revelation as the book of God's throne. The word throne in the book of Revelation is found 44 times. The word king or kingdom is found 37 times. The word power or rule is found 40 times. All of these verses, all of them, are teaching us that Christ is the sovereign majesty of the universe. And he's ruling today from a heavenly throne. I'm going to close with one of my favorite verses. It's found in Revelation 17, verse 14. And I hope that this will encourage your hearts as it would the hearts of the people that read it in that day and the persecuted saints of, of yesteryear. All through, the, all through the years of persecution, the church has drawn strength from this verse. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, these shall make war with the Lamb. This is talking about the world. The world that hates Christ today. Remember we had a congressman stand up and audaciously say that this congress uh, is, uh, doesn't care anything about what God says. You know, there's a congressman that read the Bible verses against transgenderism and homosexuality. And this corrupted congressman, this hell-bound congressman, stood up and he said... Uh, this Congress could, could care less or, or is not concerned about what God says. They shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them. Now watch this, brothers and sisters. The Lamb shall overcome them. For He is the Lord of lords. And king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Who, who are those with him today while well, they're the called? Who, who are with him today? The elect. Who are with him today? The redeemed. They are with him today. And brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches me that they're going to come with Christ when he comes back. Do you understand that? They're going to come with him. Just like Moses and Elijah were with Christ in the cloud, with Christ in that mount. Just like they were with Christ, so all of the redeemed that are gone before are going to come back with Christ. But he's not just, they're not just coming with Christ. They're coming for you. They're coming for me. They're coming to us. Just like Jesus stood in front of Peter, James, and John and said, Don't be afraid because I'm with you. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw Jesus only. They saw the one that counts. They saw the majesty 
of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one that Paul said when he does return, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, brothers and sisters, we, we live in anticipation of his second coming. But don't be afraid. Don't, don't be fretful uh, while you live in this world waiting for that day to come. Because he's ruling and he's sitting upon his throne today. And the majesty of Jesus Christ is a real, a real source of encouragement to those who believe. So what should you do, friend? What, what should you do? Worship him. What, what should we do? Serve him. What should we be doing every day? Look for the imminent second coming of the King of Kings. Because one day all humanity will behold the majesty of Jesus Christ. And all the people said, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just love you, Lord, and we love your truth. We thank you for the encouraging words of Peter and your word to us today to remind us of your great magnificence and glory. We thank you for this time together in the study of your word and ask that we would take these, uh, these uh, principles and weave them into the fabric of our life and life choices. Father, we lift up before you those whose hearts are heavy this morning and those that are bearing special burdens. Lord, we, we ask that you would intervene in mercy toward each one and manifest to each one your ability to, to heal, your ability to help, your, your ability to uh, make rejoice the hearts of those who trust in you. We ask your forgiveness for when we fail thee and one another. And Lord, help us to be the people you've called us to be so we can do the work that you've called us to do. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.